0: Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 83. Some weeks ago, we began um, to look at Psalm 83. Under the title, Surrounded by Enemies, and we considered the first eight verses last time. And this time, the focus will be on verse 9 through the end of the chapter. But let me read the entire Psalm, Psalm 83. Hear God's word. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian and to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, "Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God." My God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This morning we again look at Psalm 83. As I mentioned a moment ago, the last time I preached on the first eight verses, and the main emphasis on the sermon was on the reality of spiritual enemies. As believers, you and I need to face the reality that we have spiritual enemies who want to destroy us spiritually. For Israel, the church of the Old Testament, it was very obvious who her enemies were. Essentially, all of the nations that surround her had a common desire to see God's people destroyed. Now today, the church's enemies take many forms. Sometimes there are governments that oppose Christ and Christianity, Sometimes there are individuals who mock and persecute believers. Secular society as a whole is our enemy in as much as there are pressures and temptations that come to us that are geared to lead us away from following Christ. And last time we gleaned from the first part of Psalm 83, basically five principles or truths about our spiritual enemies. These are truths that are just as real today for us as they were for ancient Israel. And the first of these five is, is I just want to quickly summarize these five that we talked about last time. Uh, First of all, in verse 2, the enemies we are talking about are enemies of God. Those who hate you have raised their heads. There have been those who oppose Christians, and while these enemies may not even consciously realize it, they hate Christians, they hate the church because they hate God. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us, that people will hate us just as they hated him. Ever since Genesis 3.15, when God proclaimed that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil, there has been enmity. There has been constant spiritual warfare going on between God's people and the unbelieving world, which is under the dominion of the devil. Now understand, we're not talking in the context of this psalm about personal enemies, Maybe you're not getting along with someone because of something sinful that you said or did. In other words, you made an enemy. If so, then you need to ask for forgiveness and to make things right. Or perhaps there is someone who seems to hate you and to regard you as an enemy, but it has nothing to do with the fact that you're a Christian. And what can happen is that you can take things personally, and there is hate and anger in your heart toward this person because of the things they are saying and doing to you. Well, this psalm is dealing with a different sort of problem, a different sort of enemy. It's dealing with those whose hatred is of us because we are Christians. They don't like the things that we stand for. They don't like the things we believe. They don't like our lifestyle because it makes them look bad. These are enemies who then oppose us for really no good reason. The reasons are spiritual in nature. Their hatred of God is what is leading them to oppose God's people, his church, us. That's the first principle. That we're talking about God's enemies. And then second, uh, verse 3, the second truth is that they use every strategy they can to destroy us spiritually. They scheme, they plan how best to lead us away from Christ. Satan is subtle, and he is tricky in his attacks. And then third, verse 4, Our enemies desire nothing less than our complete destruction. Understand that Satan wants to see the church of Jesus Christ destroyed from the face of the earth. They want Christians, they want Christianity eradicated. They, that is, those who are inspired by Satan, not knowingly, but uh, people who who, uh, oppose us under the inspiration of Satan. Today we hear so much about tolerance, right? The enemies of the church speak of how open they are to all ideas and beliefs, but of course this is a lie. They are open to everything but the truth of God's word. They are tolerant of everything but Christ and his church. And to the unbelieving world, the message of Christianity is just too narrow because we speak of only one way to heaven, and that being through repentance and faith in Christ. We say that all other religions and beliefs are false, and so there is no tolerance of us. An issue that... Uh, in our society is, in fact, how to handle Christians um, who speak out against the sin of homosexuality and we are accused of hate speech, and and, uh, there's no desire, you see, for tolerance of our beliefs. There's, in fact, a desire to silence those of us who speak openly and biblically against the sins of our society. And then number 4, verse 5, our enemies are united in their efforts. They're willing to work together toward the common goal of opposing Christ. And then number 5, based on verses 6 through 8, these are enemies who are all around us. In these verses, the psalmist names the nations and the cities that lay just beyond the borders of Israel. And if you were to look up all of these places on a map, you would see that Israel is essentially surrounded by these enemies. Today also we live in the midst of a wicked world. Even though we are not to be of the world, we are in the world. And every day we are confronted in various ways with spiritual enemies. With all of the technological advancements of our society, these evil influences are nearer and more readily available than ever. And nothing is inherently wrong with television and radio and the Internet and magazines or books, but these things have the potential Of leading us into sinful patterns of thinking and behavior. In the same way, nothing is inherently wrong with interacting with unbelievers. We are called to be witnesses, which implies we are to be having contact with unbelievers and conversations and spending time with unbelievers, but we have to be careful about the influences that others can have upon us. We need to be on guard spiritually. We need to be not living in denial about the spiritual dangers that are all around us. And what was emphasized last time is that because of these grave spiritual dangers, because of our weakness, we need to recognize our need of Christ. Christ is the only one who has defeated Satan. He is the only one who can deliver us from him. And uh, we must recognize that it is only through faith in Christ that we can stand against the devil and escape condemnation. So we must pray, and we must ask for deliverance, we must ask Christ to strengthen us for this spiritual battle. We are, as Christians, called to be soldiers. We are called to fight the good fight of faith. And Yes, we are weak, but we are strong as we look to Christ. And as we now consider the rest of this psalm, verses 9 through 12, notice that there really is good reason to divide this psalm into these two parts. Because in the first part, the psalmist is talking to God in prayer, but it's perhaps not the kind of prayer that we normally think of. We tend to think of prayer as asking God for things. Well, in the first half of the psalm, really only verse 1 is a request. Um, Do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. But then verses 2 through 8 are basically Asaph laying out the situation, speaking to God in prayer, yes, but just telling God the situation and Asaph is describing the desperate situation that Israel faces from all of these enemies. But it's when we come to verse 9 that the psalmist turns from talking about the dangers and the realities of these enemies to pleading with God for help and for protection. And the psalmist was writing in a time when apparently Israel's, God's enemies, were, were closing in. And so verses 9 through 12. Or supplication that God would deal with these enemies. And so let's look at these verses as providing instruction as how uh, regarding how we ought to pray uh, concerning our enemies. So Asaph begins by asking God to deal with Israel's enemies like he has dealt with enemies in the past. Notice he says in verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin. At the river Kishon, due to our current enemies, Asaph is saying, what you did to enemies of the past. And this appeal to the past is really a principle taught in scripture that we ought to keep regularly in mind. Part of the reason why God has had his acts and his ways recorded in scripture is so that we can know what to expect of him in the future. And it's good and proper for us to pray, asking God to do for us what he has done for his people In the past, we ought always to pray for those things that are according to God's will. And one of the things that we learn in Scripture again and again is that it is God's will to defeat our enemies and to protect us. Our God is a gracious and merciful God as well as a just God. And so we pray for God to act as he has revealed himself to be. In fact, we ought never to hesitate to pray for God to repeat what he has done in the past. So what has God done in the past as far as the psalmist Asaph is concerned? He's he's writing here about two victories that have taken place in Israel's past history. The first is a victory over Midian, and the second is a victory over Sisera. Verse 9 refers, first of all, to this victory over Midian, a victory that's recorded in Judges chapters 6 through 8. And uh, in those chapters... We read of Gideon. Gideon was the judge who was raised up by God to deliver his people from the Midianites. And uh, we understand that the Midianites were a thorn in the flesh of God's people for seven years. And scripture says that the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And uh, we read in Judges of the the strategy of the Midianites, which was to destroy all of the sustenance of the land of Israel. The Midianites along with the Amalekites would wait just until Israel's grain was about to be harvested and then they would sweep down through the land and destroy their crops. They would also destroy any of Israel's livestock that they could get a hold of. And so the Israelites struggled to survive and they in fact lived in dens and caves and in the strongholds of the mountains to get away from their enemies. And it was in this context that God raised up Gideon. And remember how Gideon started out with 32,000... 32,000 soldiers, but God right away said that that it couldn't be um, that God would would use that many because then the people would think that they were saved by their own strength. And so God told Gideon to send home any soldier who was afraid, who had any intrepidation about about fighting, and so 22,000 soldiers went home. And so Gideon was left with 10,000, and yet God said, that's still too many. And so then Gideon brought the soldiers down to the water, and those that got down on their knees and drank like a dog were sent home. Those who reached down for water, who then put their hand to their mouth, remained. And you can probably recall the amazing thing. The army was at that point whittled down to 300. And it was with these 300 men that the Midianite camp was surrounded, and with their trumpets and torches, They startled and they frightened the Midianite soldiers, and in the cloak of darkness, many killed themselves. It was also Gideon and these 300 men who killed the four Midianite rulers who are named in verse 11. So that was one great victory of the past. And then we have another record of victory from Judges 4 and 5. Verse 9 also mentions Jabin, who was the king of Canaan, and his commander Sisera. Sisera terrorized the land of Canaan for 20 years. but By God's grace, Barak, the Israelite commander, defeated Sisera's army. And you probably remember the story of how Sisera fled and came to the tent of a man named Heber, whose wife was Jael. And while Sisera was resting in their tent, Jael drove a tent stake through Sisera's temple. And as Asaph, the psalmist, reflects on these victories, he calls upon God to do the same again. And so it is that we also plead to God to defeat our enemies, to deliver us, to protect us, to give us victory. And the rest of the psalm, verses 13 through 18, is a further explanation of how we ought to pray concerning our enemies. First of all, We ask that the Lord would make our spiritual enemies helpless, that they would be helpless in all of their attacks against us. We pray pray that their plans would be stopped. This is what I take to be the main idea of verse 13. Oh, God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Chaff is that debris, It's, it's that worthless Debris that's left after winnowing grain. It's scattered by the wind as something of no consequence. It's weak before the wind. And so we pray that the plans of God's enemies will be thwarted, that these enemies will be driven away and unable to carry out their plans and their strategies. I think of those who are pushing for abortion. I think of those pushing for homosexual approval in our land or those who on our mission fields oppose the work of spreading the gospel. Is it not right to pray that the works of evil will be like chaff before the wind? but to pray that the cause of evil will be unsuccessful. And then second, we ask that God's judgments would be unleashed against his and our enemies, which is described poetically in verse 14 by this figure, of this great fire that sweeps over the mountains. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. This is a picture often uh, uh, fire and flames are, are used in scripture as figures of God's wrath against evil. Then we have another figure of God's wrath in the form of a storm. Verse 15, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Get back to that figure of fire if you've been around a very large fire, you know how terrifying and destructive fire can be. And of course, all of us have experienced storms uh, on some level, and they make us feel helpless, and they make us feel small. And this humbling is what the wicked need. And so it is that we pray for God's wrath to descend upon the proud wicked who think there is no God and who think that they can get away with their wickedness. But take notice of what the psalmist sees as the goal of God's wrath. He urges God to pursue them. In other words, God, go after them. Don't let them get away. And terrify them, he says. Make them afraid. Make them realize that they are under your judgment, O God. He goes on to say in verse 16, fill their faces with shame. that's, That's speaking of being humbled before God, where they recognize their sin and their wrongdoing before our holy God. Lord basically saying, cause our enemies, your enemies, to see the evil of what they are doing. That's not all. The psalmist sees yet a higher purpose. The goal is not simply that they will be frightened and ashamed, but Asaph says at the end of verse 16 that, and in the Hebrew the idea is, in order that, this is the purpose of all of this, that they may seek your name, O Lord. So Asaph is praying that these enemies will be turned from being enemies of God into those who humbly seek God's grace. So I understand this as a prayer that these enemies will be saved. I paraphrase the psalmist's request this way, Lord, may they be frightened as they realize the judgment their sins deserve. May they be ashamed of their sin that they may then call out to you, seek you, seek your grace in forgiveness unto salvation. We are reminded of the fact that sometimes the Lord is pleased to use his judgments in the context of bringing about repentance and salvation in the lives of those who are once his enemies. This is the one, one of the ways and one of the grand ways that God can and does deliver us from our enemies. Think of it. He turns our enemies into members of the church. He turns our enemies into our brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a glorious thing this is. What a blow to Satan when those who oppose the church are turned into Christ's servants. Think of the Apostle Paul as one of the greatest examples of this. A, a persecutor of the church was changed and used of God to become arguably the greatest missionary the church has ever had. And yet, I'm sure as you know, this is not always what happens when men are confronted by God. Sometimes The judgments of God do not have the effect of softening men into submission, at least not right away. Uh, Some can become very obstinate in their rebellion. And so it is that we have verses 17 and 18, where the psalmist prays for God to increase his judgments against those who insist on destroying us. He writes, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. Now this may be, some commentators say that this is speaking of these peoples as nations let these nations be destroyed forever in other words that they would no longer be nations that oppose the people of God but it may be also on a more personal level this may be a reference to eternal destruction in hell but it is a destruction of evil uh, of evil enemies on a level that is designed to compel them to acknowledge willingly or unwillingly that Jehovah God is the ruler of all For again, in verse 18, we have a purpose clause there. In order that, this is the purpose, in order that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Hopefully, they will acknowledge Jehovah God to be their ruler, willingly or unwillingly, however it may happen. If it's willingly, it will be in a saving way. But uh, that's, that's the goal, and I would have us to to, I guess I, I thought about this, this passage in relation to what we have in our Psalter, thinking of the translation that we have um, of Psalm 83 in our Psalter where it says this, Fill up their faces with humiliation and let them seek your name, Jehovah then. And I'm not sure exactly what the intent of the authors of that translation was. It, it doesn't necessarily indicate to me as I read those words that It expresses the purpose of of this judgment is that they would be saved. It almost sounds like let them seek you Jehovah then after they have been humiliated and almost sounds like the idea is that they will find that all they will face is judgment. But the text says that in order that, I'm talking about the, the text of scripture, in order that the purpose is that these enemies will seek God and in order that they might know God even in salvation. For certainly those who seek God in humility will be saved. And so I would point out that this is a a very serious prayer, a prayer that also needs to be prayed with the right attitude and with the right motives. Um, We ought not to pray this prayer out of personal hate for an enemy. Uh, It's certainly possible to pray this prayer for selfish reasons that have to do with personal convenience. Suppose there's somebody who hates me, even as a Christian, and they say nasty things about me and to me. It's possible that I might take that very personally and become quite angry, and and I might find it very difficult to pray for this person's salvation, and I would perhaps just wish that God would just destroy this person. But if I'm seeking God's judgments against somebody simply because I don't like this person, then I am not praying as this psalmist is praying. In Psalm 83, the concern is that God's people might actually be destroyed by these enemies. This is far more serious than personal inconvenience. And more than that, and here's the important thing, the psalmist is concerned about God's glory and not his own. In verse 18, he explains why he wants these enemies to be judged in order that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. What bothers the psalmist is how these enemies are not acknowledging God as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. They're not giving God the honor and glory that he deserves as the one and only true God. What the psalmist is praying for is essentially what we pray for in the Lord's prayer when we say, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the, the desire that every one of us ought to have as God's people, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our attitude ought to be that if it means that God must unleash wrath and judgment upon sinners in order for him to be recognized as the God he is, yes, so be it. God's glory is what is important. God's glory through salvation, yes. God's glory also through making his wrath known, as Romans 9 says. Because we love God, whatever brings glory to him is what we want. And yet we can pray for God's judgments, we can pray for an end to evil, and yet often God is silent. And our enemies, they, they scheme together and they attack It seems as though they are going to have the victory. We don't see any sign of God. Our enemies are not being frightened. They are not being shamed unto salvation. They are not being judged in wrath. They seem to prosper. They seem to only grow more bold and determined in their efforts to harm the church and its believers. Our experience is sometimes that of the psalmist who opens the psalm with these words, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. The issue of this psalm is that the Lord is not dealing with these enemies as he has dealt with enemies in the past. He's not turning them. He's not judging them. He doesn't seem to be doing anything. They're not being shamed. They're not being humbled. And when God is silent, it can be disheartening. It can be, indeed, a trial of our faith. Then we have to remember that silence also is okay. Sometimes it's God's will to withhold judgment. And this also is part of his good plan. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of his crucifixion. The enemies of God were finally getting their way with Jesus. For a long time they had wanted to get their hands on him. They had schemed and they had plotted and finally they had him. And human wisdom may have cried out at that moment to God as Jesus was being arrested and then later put upon the cross, Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. Human wisdom would say Jesus must not be crucified, his enemies must not be allowed to do this. But God was silent because this was his way of accomplishing our salvation. And so Jesus must die, and his enemies must do this thing because in God's sovereign plan, this was how Jesus would suffer for our sins and become the atoning sacrifice that we need for salvation. And so God did not intervene, not not right away, because his will was to save sinners. And there are times when God is silent in your time of danger, and when that happens, you must have the faith to believe that this is another instance when God is wise and and we have to bow to his wisdom. Sometimes God allows our enemies to come against us in order to strengthen us in our faith. And sometimes he waits until the very last moment to deliver us. That happened, did it not, again and again, with God's people in the Old Testament, again, to look back and to see God's ways with his people? Did it not happen again and again that God would wait until the very last second to deliver his people in order that they would realize how weak they are without him? And yet, at the same time, when they are suddenly rescued at the last moment, to so appreciate God's power and grace. And so God does have a good purpose, even in the attacks of our enemies. And so when you are attacked, certainly pray to the Lord for deliverance. Pray that his and our enemies will be converted. And if not converted, that they will come to bow their knee before our God. But if God is silent, may you have the faith to understand and to believe that God uses even enemies to his glory and honor. Even our own sin and rebellion has been used of God to glorify and to praise him as a God of grace who saves undeserving sinners. The Bible says that even, we were, that even we were once enemies who were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. We were once children of wrath, but our rebellion has become the occasion for God's mercy and grace to be revealed in a powerful way. That God would send his Son to die for enemies is an amazing thing. And those of us who know that grace will sing of it for all eternity. So sin, enemies, attacks against us in the church, these are not occasions for discouragement, not occasions for despair. These are the backdrops that God uses to highlight his grace and his power and his mercy. Can you trust him to do what is right? Can you trust his sovereign plan? You must believe that indeed one day all will know, all will know, and it will be a great day, all will know that God is the most high over all the earth. For God will have his way with men. Amen. Let us pray. Father, in heaven we face many enemies, and we know, Father, that in and of ourselves we are weak. We cannot defeat these spiritual enemies. Only you can and you have through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we look to you uh, for deliverance from those who oppose us, who oppose you. Father, we thank you that, that uh, you have allowed us to become your precious people, so that the hate that is toward you is toward us. Father, that is actually a privilege um, that shows that we are indeed your people. But Father, it's difficult as we face persecution, as we face those who hate us for our beliefs. Um, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our faith. We pray that you would protect us, You would, that you would deliver us from those enemies who would like to see your church destroyed. Father, we pray that you would convert Um, those who are currently your enemies, even as we were once your enemies. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in their hearts. At the very least, Father, we look forward to that day when all will bow before you, all will acknowledge Jesus Christ to be the King of kings and and Lord of lords. Lord, we look forward to when uh, all of the rebellion that currently exists against you will be brought to an end. Uh, But, Father, in the meantime, Lord... Even as sometimes you are silent, may we trust your wisdom, trust your plan, knowing that you are bringing about um, our good and your glory through all that takes place. uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.